Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. This month, as Hong Kong wrestles with the reality of Beijing's new national security legislation, we're looking at the role played by two mighty non-Chinese business empires that have shaped the city. We're joined by two authors who have new books out exploring this. Robert Bickers of Bristol University, who's written China Bound, a history of John Swire and Sons and his world. And we're also joined by Jonathan Kaufman, former Wall Street Journal correspondent, now director of Northeastern University School of Journalism, who's written The Last Kings of Shanghai about the Sassoons and the Kadoris, the rival Jewish dynasties that helped create modern China. Robert, um, at the start of your book, there's this great section where you describe how much of Hong Kong's economy that Swire actually controls. It's sort of a staggering breadth of goods and services. Could you maybe talk us through how a British-owned company came to amass such a large stake in the Hong Kong economy and and just maybe even an an idea of how much they own and how many different things they own in Hong Kong? Yes, yes, indeed. So you can fly to Hong Kong from London and many other parts of the world on Swire. Uh, You can go through the airport and um, parts of the airport services are Swire. You can check into a hotel that Swire owns. You can refresh yourself with, oh, I don't know, a cup of coffee and some sugar, Swire sugar. Um, You can get on the the NTR and go along to Taiku Shing, basically Swire City. You can go to a restaurant in a Swire-owned building. All of that is, is Swire, and it's a legacy presence across Hong Kong. So Swire employs something like 45,000 people, I think, in in Hong Kong. And it's very present within the city. Names of stations, um, a chair at the the university, buildings at Hong Kong University as well. It's not wholly focused now in Hong Kong, but that's a core part of its identity as well as its activity since it opened in Hong Kong in 1870, indeed. So it's 150 years of of Swire in in Hong Kong. It's an unusual survivor. And and who would have thought it? If you you sort of turn left at Buckingham Palace, if you're so minded, and walk down Buckingham Gate, it's about the 20th building down on the right is Swire House. Very unassuming, very discreet, very wealthy, very powerful and very interesting. And Jonathan, one of the two dynasties that you have been writing about, the Kuduris, they're amazing survivors as well, aren't they? I mean, I was reading the current Kuduri patriarch, Michael Kuduri, is ranked as the 11th richest man in Hong Kong with a fortune of $7.5 billion, according to Forbes. I mean, talk us through how he amassed that sort of massive fortune. It really is a remarkable story. The Kaduris, like the Sassoons, uh, started out in Baghdad. Um, they were a Jewish family uh, in Baghdad, um, part of the Jewish diaspora that had left Jerusalem um, and been taken uh, to Babylon, which we read about in the Bible. Um, but the Jews in Babylon actually did extremely well. 
And the Sassoon family, which was the greatest family there, um, pioneered trade in throughout the Middle East and India and eventually China. Uh, the Kaduris were actually poor relations of the Sassoons. Uh, they'd been doing okay in Baghdad, um, but then their father died and they fell on harder times. And so uh, the mother, Rima Kaduri, decided to send four of her sons off to try to find their fortune. Um, with the Sassoons in India and then in China. So um, Eli Kaduri uh, and his brothers left. Eli Kaduri was probably only about 15 or 16 when he left Baghdad, uh, went to Bombay, eventually around 18 years old, uh, landed in Hong Kong, and then um, was a kind of a young man on the make. I think one of the things, and I think Robert captures this well, which is that in the 19th century, uh, China was a young man's game. It was a place where if you were young and ambitious and adventurous, um, it was the Silicon Valley of its time. You could make a lot of money very quickly. And so... Um, Eli Kaduri at first hooked up with the Sassoons. They trained him. They employed him. They sent him to an outpost in China. Now, the story is that he quarreled with the Sassoons and decided for moral reasons to leave. But I think the fact is he just saw at 18 there was a lot of money to be made in China. And why doesn't he just go out on his own? So he went down to Hong Kong, and it's an interesting sign of what Hong Kong was like then for a Jewish entrepreneur. He actually started his business not calling it Kaduri, but calling it Kelly, because I think he knew that having a Jewish surname would not help him in those early days of Hong Kong. Um, but he went on and, and began to build his fortune, in large part cooperating with other immigrants um, as well as with the Chinese. Um, he was excluded, because he was Jewish, from the kind of old boy network that um, was developing in Hong Kong and business and elsewhere. So he had to be more entrepreneurial, scrappier. Um, he started a power company uh, in Kowloon, which then was a backwater. He uh, built hotels, which are now the very famous Peninsula Hotel. Um, and then once the Repulse Bay Hotel. Um, but what's most striking to me is that they made most of their money in Shanghai. They owned the largest mansion in Shanghai. They entertained Charles Lindbergh. They were very much part of the social and political scene uh, under the nationalists in Shanghai. When the communists took over in 49, the Sassoons, the other great family, left Shanghai and never returned to China. They lost almost everything. The Kaduris decided to move to Hong Kong, and they had been slowly moving some of their money to Hong Kong because they knew that Shanghai wouldn't last forever. And so they were able, even though they had huge losses when Shanghai fell to the communists, they were able to rebuild in Hong Kong. Um, the China Light and Power became the largest uh, power company supplying all of Kowloon. The Peninsula Hotel became an international brand. They expanded everywhere. Like Swire, it's very hard to go through Hong Kong and not be paying the Kaduri something, whether it's the Peak Tram or the Harbor Tunnel. I mean, they just managed to have their fingers in all these pies. And I think it was that diversity which sustained them through all the changes that China went through. Mm. A question, I guess, for both of you is, and this really gets to what you're talking about there, Jonathan, is that Hong Kong in some ways is an oligopoly, like most sectors are dominated by one or two, uh, one or two tycoons. I mean, I'm really curious about how the Swires and the Kaduris manoeuvred themselves into such advantageous positions, given that neither of them were, were first comers, um, unlike their, their sort of famous competitors. I, I would say for Swire, they, they had the advantage of not being the first arrival on the scene. 
enemies of, of the company uh, called them scavengers of the East. They came in afterwards once the market opening was, was identified um, and then they exploited it. They were very happy not to be top dog. They were very happy not to be Johnny Matheson in the 1880s or, or so on. They were much less politically engaged, in fact. You might think they had a very, very close connection with colonial power, with government. Uh, but in fact, these were men from Liverpool. They didn't hold with London. They didn't hold with government at all. They would, they would make their own way through uh, the British economy and the world of British power. They'd make their own way to Australia, to the United States, and ultimately to Asia, working with other Liverpool men, both in getting to Asia and working with other Liverpool men when they were there in Asia. Hong Kong was uh, a node in their network. They first arrived in Shanghai. John Samuel Swire, the great patriarch of the 19th century company, um, arrived in Shanghai in late 1866. They brought young men out from Liverpool to work with them. And over the course of the history, there's been a shift in the the hotspots of, of activity, Shanghai, uh, would it be Japan, would it be uh, Hong Kong? Their own losses in, in World War II and then after 1949 meant a reorientation. Perhaps they should become an entirely Australian company. That's one way they looked. They were also not part of the club. They belonged to different clubs. They belonged to Liverpool clubs. <laughs> um, but over time, that changed because to, to work effectively in, in Hong Kong and to have a voice for business and perhaps to have a share of the business that was going to be made available through colonial power, you had to play that game as well. But they come from a very different tradition, which they're very conscious of. And Jonathan, I mean, how did, uh, how did the Kaduris manage it as late arrivals? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting... I, I, I think that the Kaduris were always a little bit at war with the establishment, even though they wanted to become part of it. And one of the ways you see that is that, you know, sort of like Warren Buffett, the great American investor, the Kaduris are taking stakes in lots of companies. The Sassoons make their money in opium. They basically dominate the opium trade. They successfully drive out uh, Jardine Matheson. They use technology, steamships, and, and the telegraph to kind of make their fortune in opium. The Kaduris never get involved in opium, in part because they don't have the capital to do it, they decide to buy stakes in lots of companies. And at one point in Hong Kong, a regulation is passed that says you can only become a member of the board of directors of a Hong Kong company if you're a British citizen. And that's really, in some ways, directed against people like Eli Kaduri. He's a citizen of Baghdad. He doesn't have British citizenship. And over and over again, keeps on applying for it and keeps on getting turned down. And when you read the documents, the British are saying, well, you know, if we give it to him, we'll have to let other people like that become citizens. God forbid. This is fascinating <laughs> to me. Anyone who's ever been to the Peninsula Hotel and sits in that lobby and has tea must think this hotel was built by some great squire from England who came over and recreated his British country house fantasy in Hong Kong, when in fact it was built by an immigrant from Baghdad who spoke English with a, with a, with a, with a very thick accent and didn't set foot in London until he kind of married his British wife and, and then traveled back and forth. So the Kaduris also understood how you get power in the British Empire, how to be a good imperialist. And the way they did that was by supporting British charities, uh, becoming close to uh, people in Buckingham Palace, to the royal family, and then became citizens and were knighted. So there's this way in which they wanted to see themselves as British, but the British always saw them as Jewish. 
And I think the Chinese could never quite figure it out. I think the Chinese understood they were different than these other British Taipans. Uh, they were fascinated by Jews. They were fascinated by the family. Um, Ellie Kaduri's wife had this tragedy where they were living in Shanghai, and they lived in a beautiful mansion, and there was a house fire. And uh, Ellie Kaduri's British-born wife ran in to save the governess from the house fire, got caught in the smoke, and died. And the Chinese then loved to tell this story, as the Kaduris did, of the British, you know, aristocratic woman who rushed in to save the life of her Chinese governess. So there was a way in which the Kaduris were able to, to reach into all these different cultures, Jewish culture, British culture, Chinese culture, and then use those contacts and that empathy and that support to just become wealthier and wealthier. And then, as I say, after 1949, at a time when British companies were fleeing, I mean, nobody wanted to go to Hong Kong. They were fleeing China. It was the Cold War and so forth. The Kaduris decided to rebuild and to stay in Hong Kong and politically to be very astute. They never said a bad word about China. And so they also understood at a political level what they had to do, what they had to say to keep their fortune growing. I mean, you have this amazing detail in the book um, when it comes to 1989 that Lawrence Kaduri not only refused to criticise the Tiananmen killings, but he said too much democracy is not the best thing for this area of the world. There must be controls. That was something that you believe he sincerely believed or he was just playing the political game? I think he believed it. I mean, the Kaduris were imperialists. They were colonialists. And I think the Kaduris believed that the Hong Kong that existed, especially from 1978 to probably a few years ago, was ideal for their business. And I think they believed ideal for Hong Kong, this idea of kind of a British administered region, much as Shanghai had been, that would have a kind of rule of law, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, robust businesses, rising standard of living. Remember, Hong Kong was doing far better than China for all those years that China was, was cut off by the world and, and, and ruled by Mao. And so I think that Lawrence Kaduri believed that this should continue forever. And he was also, I think, conscious and realistic of what China would accept. And frankly, he's been proven right. He understood, and you see this in his private correspondence, that China would never allow Hong Kong to become independent. He always said that Hong Kong was important as long as it was useful to China. And he was always prepared to adjust his expectations and his rhetoric to do that. I also think, you know, Lawrence Kaduri, he became Lord Kaduri. He operated at the very highest levels of Hong Kong society and government. He liked dealing with people at that level in China. So the Kaduris have met with every leader of China. They had very close contacts with the leadership in Beijing. And these were people he could deal with. So I think the idea of Hong Kong becoming a democracy, I mean, Chris Patton, you know, I, I think was quite frustrated with, with people like the Kaduris because they wouldn't support him in these efforts to democratize Hong Kong. And you see that even today with, you know, despite, I think, the sympathy the Kaduris have for the protests and the obvious pain that they express with what's going on in Hong Kong, in the end, they have endorsed the national security law. They are businessmen. And so, you know, for them, politics is important, but I think it's important as it serves the business, 
which is something that companies from Google to Microsoft to Boeing, uh, Nokia, I mean, everyone is going to have to deal with in China, that if you're doing business in China, there's a political reality that you're going to have to adapt to. And I, I think that's always been true. Um, I was going to ask, I mean, since 1997, we've seen Beijing using Hong Kong's tycoons almost as, as a form of indirect rule. Of course, the first chief executive, Tung Chihua, was also a tycoon. We see Beijing summoning up the tycoons at times of sort of political stress. Jonathan, how important do you think the tycoons are and how important are these foreign conglomerates like the, the Kuduris, the Swire? Do they still play a role in Beijing's thinking? You know, it sometimes occurs to me, you know, back when these firms first came to China in the 19th century, um, they didn't know Chinese culture and they had to find people to act as intermediaries, the comprador, the comprador system. And I sometimes feel today that the Kaduris and these other firms have become the new compradors. Um, they're working for China, in a sense, to expand overseas. So one example, which I found fascinating, when China opened up again in 78, one of the first calls that the circle around Deng Xiaoping made was to the Kaduris to ask them to invest uh, in building a nuclear power plant uh, in China, right near Hong Kong. And it was the biggest foreign investment uh, in China for many years. And it was very successful. Everyone made a lot of money, but it was a symbol of, of China opening up uh, investing in nuclear power. Well, I was talking to the company recently, and the, the Chinese companies that they worked with, that they trained, that, that they worked with for all these decades, are now the companies that are bidding to build these nuclear power plants in Great Britain, um, which are caught up in controversy. And so I think that's a pattern that you see over and over again, is that Western firms went in, including the Kaduris and others, in the 1980s, especially thinking this is a great market and we'll do it. And now, of course, we realize that China's become this very powerful competitor and, and world-class in, in many areas. So I can't speak to the Chinese firms, but certainly for the Kaduris and these Western firms, it sometimes feels like they've become the new compradors with a lot of the compromises that they kind of involve. And I think part of what's led to the Kaduris' success is that they've adjusted to that. You know, the Sassoons, this other family I wrote about, Victor Sassoon ruled over Shanghai in a social sense, politically, economically. And once that was gone, he could never see going back. In other words, what was the fun in that? Where was the power? He kind of retreated to the Bahamas and had racing horses and, and kind of just didn't do very much. The Kaduris were different in that the patriarch, Eli Kaduri, who also had this grand life in Shanghai, didn't leave Shanghai in time, was imprisoned by the Japanese, died under Japanese captivity. The Kaduris then lost everything, and the, the two boys, who were then in their 40s, Lawrence and Horace Kaduri, went to Hong Kong to try to rebuild their fortune. And I think what they decided was that their father had made a mistake, that he had lived in this bubble, that he had been removed from the, the tumult in the street and inequality, missed the rise of communism, and they weren't going to make the same mistake. So they got much more involved in Hong Kong politics, maintained ties to China, helped refugees, became very philanthropic, and tried to figure out a way to not let Shanghai happen again to them in Hong Kong. And I would argue, had this book come out three years ago, 
they were enormously successful. They pulled it off. China's become a global power. The Kaduris are the wealthiest Western family in China. What's not to call a success? But I think what's fascinating to me about China, and, and, and Robert is, you know, the historian about this in terms of understanding Shanghai as well, once again, it seems like China, this nationalism, is rearing its head. And once again, it seems like the foreign firms are caught saying, oh, wait a second, we didn't quite think things were going to turn out this way. And so all the positive things they did, all the bridges they built, seem now to be in peril when you've got a resurging Chinese government that's determined to claim what's theirs. Hmm. I mean, Robert, a, a question for you. I mean, given this sort of rise of nationalism and a change in the Chinese elite, I mean, both of the companies you've looked at have been very successful. I mean, one came from Baghdadi Jews, the other came from sort of uh, Liverpool uh, and Yorkshire sort of stock. And yet they were very much about cultivating the elite in um, England and in Hong Kong. Are you seeing sort of similar practices, if you like, to sort of cultivate the, the Chinese elite? And how do they continue to do that given this sort of nationalistic trend? It is just being a foreign company um, putting you out of out of the game? Well, it has been at times being a foreign company uh, put them out of the game in, uh, in post-independence Malaysia. The focus today is on Hong Kong, but it's always, it's worth remembering that Hong Kong while it is exceptional in so many ways, its story is also part of a wider story. And in particular, after World War II, during the Cold War, it became much more difficult for any enterprises to do anything without government support, without interacting with government, any government. The British colonial administration in Malaya, the independent Malaysian government, the occupation authorities in, in Japan, the Japanese government the Chinese government. So we're looking at Hong Kong, but they're facing massive problems that in the post-war world, um, and even more so if you've, if you've got something like um, an airline. The intensely political world when it comes to acquiring landing rights and routes and so on. So you have to talk to government. Um, otherwise, um, you don't get access. So one of the things we have been talking about, Jonathan, you, you put it nicely when you turned that around about Compadors, is, is connections, familiarity, the power of history also in terms of those, those connections. So the fact that a company has had a historic link with China since 1866 comes to count for something that it can say it invested, it employed 10,000 people in Shanghai in the 1930s. It helped people move around the country as the, the largest single foreign-owned shipping firm uh, in, in the 1930s. Who carried a substantial proportion of the, you know, the crown jewels of China, the National Palace Museum collections, out of Nanjing in late 1937? Swire ship. You know, a really important part of China's idea of its cultural heritage these days. And those connections were specifically drawn on when the company went back into to China in the late 1970s and then in the 1880s. There were old men who were owed pensions. The firm paid, the, paid its debts to them after a gap of 30 years. So history is, is really important here. It's not just an affectation for, for a firm. It is a source of connections and, and a sort of legitimacy there as well. But I, I mean, I, I wonder if that really holds true in today's China. I'm thinking uh, Lawrence Kadori's warning, our future relies on us being useful to China. And that is the only reason we're here. And I'm also thinking about 
Cafe Pacific's recent troubles, um, where its wires history hasn't really helped it out all that much. In Hong Kong, there's very much a perception that uh, Cafe Pacific was punished because its British chairman at the time, John Slosar, said he wouldn't dream of telling his staff what to think regarding Hong Kong politics. Very soon after that, he stepped down. There was a new chairman. Staff members were sacked. Is history really helping in Aswire there? What power do any of us have? What power, you know, what, what autonomy do I really have as a historian, um, as an academic with, you know, in China? Um, from the, you know, from the micro to the macro, the Chinese state does what it intends to do. Whether whether that's Cathay Pacific or whether it's Robert Bickers from Bristol, private citizen, this is a controlling state. Yeah, one thing I would say though is one of the things that both my book, Last Kings of Shanghai, and Robert's book, I mean, illustrate is China has a much more cosmopolitan and global history than I think the current government wants to acknowledge or talk about. In every classroom in China, they have that uh, that translates as you know, never forget national humiliation. I mean, children are it's just drilled into them the hundred years of humiliation and so forth. But again, I think the history of Shanghai, the history of Hong Kong, these were vibrant cities. Yes, they were colonial. Yes, they were imperialistic. But they had some of the energy and, and intellectual combat and political upheaval of London, of New York, of these great cities of the world. And China has really buried that in their history. They don't want to talk about it. And I think that while it's true it's a controlling state, there was a time up until a few years ago, and I, I would hope a time in the future, when the world is going to be interconnected and globalization is going to be important. And I think in a way the ability of China to sort of, yes, it was colonized, but to somehow take lessons from that to become a, an economic superpower, to work with these firms and maybe flip things on them so that they're now in charge. There's kind of a, a different history of China, which is much more outward looking, much more Shanghai than Beijing, you know, much more Hong Kong. And, and I think that perhaps we've seen the end of it, or perhaps this is something that, as in China before, kind of falls beneath the sand for a while but then resurfaces as Shanghai reemerged once again. You know, maybe Hong Kong will also. But, but I think Robert's right. You know, as of now, the government has clearly decided, you know, we're going a certain nationalistic way and, and no one's going to stop us. I was going to ask, as a former Wall Street Journal correspondent, whether you see a role for foreign conglomerates anymore or is sort of the story of Tung Chi Hua's Orient overseas, is that a kind of cautionary tale? Because what happened to Tung Chi Hua's company was it got bought up by the Chinese state at a massive cost, but basically nationalized, right, to become part of Costco. Well, I think to pick up what Robert was saying, I think globally businesses are facing this issue everywhere now, which is we were living in an age for the past 20 or 30 years of globalization, transnational, multinationals, corporations being bigger than governments, more important than governments. They basically could move their money around and, and move products around and, and were really seen as, as shaping the economy. It feels not only in China, but here in the U.S., uh, in, the, in Europe and elsewhere, there's a feeling that the state and governments need to re-regulate, need to get back in control, um, that companies have been you know, too much in control. 
Um, I think it'll be interesting how different governments deal with that. In the U.S., it may be regulation. In Europe, it may be regulation. In China, you know, I think the Kaduris, frankly, are quite worried. I mean, they make most of their money selling electricity and power in Kowloon. And they have a number of agreements that guarantee a rate of return. I mean, if I were them, I'd be wondering if China really begins to take control of Hong Kong, are they going to allow a company to make a guaranteed rate of return? I mean, that's a, a very capitalist and, and, and also a, a concept that benefits the company. Or will they say, well, no, this is a national resource and you can make a little bit, but we don't want you to, to do it. They'll probably let them keep the Peninsula Hotel. Um, but, but I think that uh, all these companies, and, and you see it now with Zoom and Google, I mean, everyone is trying to figure out what do they have to give up to the Chinese in terms of control or a stake in the company to maintain the ability to make any kind of a profit? A question for you about, uh, I guess, the future of Swire, because uh, it's it's in a slightly different position to the Kaduris as a, as a, as a sort of a family. Um, I mean, international business seems to be rather spooked by this new national security law with uh, some ridiculous percentage of businesses contemplating it leaving Hong Kong, I think about 30%. Um, I mean, how do you see the future for Cathay and Swire, given its um, politically checkered history in the last year, um, and the increasing willingness of Beijing to target tycoons it disapproves of, um, such as Xiao Jianhua? So this is a company which is um, diversified and it has across the decades, especially since uh, since the war, uh, initiated um, drives to diversify its, you know, its geographical spread. You, you buy a can of Coca-Cola on the west coast of the, Uni- west coast of the United States, you know, it's a swire bottling operation and distribution operation. So it's not wholly uh, a Hong Kong company. And it's faced this sort of challenge before. Um, it, it faced it uh, and lost, as everybody lost after 1949, and it uh, had to evacuate, surrendering everything in 1954. Um, it faced it when it was very uncertain about um, the situation of Hong Kong and the Taiwan Straits crisis. Um, it sold its building in Hong Kong, built one in Sydney instead. You know, after 1967 and the riots in 1967. So in one sense, you know, those, and I can't speak for those running the company at the moment, but they, ha- they actually have a history of adaptation to force majeure <laughs> uh, to, to deal with. Um, and, uh, wh- you know, the history I track, despite these moves, they've, they've come back to Hong Kong. They have, you know, uh, and they've come back to Asia in, in general, fixed assets, but also, you know, knowing the market uh, and, and a lot of human capital uh, invested there uh, as well. So, you know, the historian in me sometimes sits back and think, well, here we are again. If I think about this, this another way, I mean, many of us are sort of very pessimistic and gloomy about what, what's happening and the, the course of Chinese politics over the last six or seven years or so. But my university holds uh, a graduation celebration once a year in China because we have so many students, uh, as does Melbourne, as does Sydney, as does yours as well, I expect, Jonathan, from, from China itself. So there I am, and I've been two times, in a room with 360 of, uh, of, of Chinese students who studied at Bristol, having a fabulous time with, with their parents, celebrating their, their academic success. They're brilliant. They, they sort of restore my faith. <laughs> as someone who's been working on China since 1988, that here is this immense cosmopolitan talent, open-minded, bursting to sort of, um, you know, make, make their contribution. So, you know, they'll bide their time. 
but is um, Hong Kong today, is it Shanghai of 1949? You know, with the national security legislation, we did see the taming of the tycoons. They, they were all forced to almost do a loyalty pledge, uh, throwing their support behind the national security legislation before they'd even seen its contents. Is there a parallel? Let's start with you, Robert. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, I draw from history again. I look at the 1930s uh, and the new nationalist state there. We forget the, the extent to which, even at that heyday of British power, that British representative, British firms uh, in China had to come to deals with the Chinese state. And they did. Uh, and in the mid-1930s, Swires were offering a substantial percentage uh, in new joint ventures to uh, leading Chinese figures to sort of, you know, embed themselves within the changed reality of 1930s China. I adopt the, the long view uh, of, of what's happening. Short-term crisis, we'll see how things revert. And Jonathan, what about you? I mean, we are seeing this move to sort of integrate Hong Kong into this greater Bay Area, so it will be just another Chinese city. Do you think these international companies can, can survive, or are we seeing you know, the end of Asia's global city, that brand that Hong Kong was so famous for? You know, it's interesting when the, the Kaduris, you know, these Baghdadi immigrants, as they came up in the world, they got a coat of arms that they developed, and they got a motto to go with a coat of arms, uh, very British for these, this, these Baghdadi immigrants. And their motto was, adhere and prosper. And that's really what they've done. They've adhered, and they've prospered, and I suspect they'll continue to do that. I think one thing, though, we have to, I think what, what both books do is they take business and put it at the center of history. Right, History is often told as generals and politicians. But both of us, I think, have shown the role of business. One of the things I think history has taught us and that history is teaching us now is don't look to businessmen for the moral balance sheet. They're not going to be the ones who take the great moral stand, who say this far and no far. They're not going to be Churchill. They're not even going to be Chris Patton. Um, you know, they're not even going to be a Chinese dissident. Their focus is business. And so I think that um, what we're going to discover is that it's going to fall to politicians and other countries, dissent within China, leaders within China to determine the future. Businesses will try to figure out if there's money to be made, they'll make it. Um, and God knows they make it in lots of parts of the world, so they'll be fine. But I think the future of China uh, is going to be much more determined by politicians and citizens and, and those great actors of history, not the, not the businessmen who are important, but in the end, at crucial moral points, often let you down. That's a great place to end. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Robert Biggers, the author of China Bound, A History of John Swire and Sons and His World, and our other guest, Jonathan Kaufman, author of Last Kings of Shanghai, Two Rival Dynasties and the Creation of Modern China. Thanks also to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel. Background research is by Julia Bergen. Theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.